Hi, I'm Abby Mercado, co-founder and CEO of Rescripted, former VC investor and ever entrepreneur, fierce advocate for women and mom of IVF twins. Welcome to Women's Health Mavericks, a podcast dedicated to shining a light on the people who are moving the needle when it comes to women's health and wellness. From inspiring entrepreneurs and innovators to leaders of big brands defining culture, to movers and shakers of biosciences companies dedicated to treating women, we'll introduce you to the people, the ideas, and the businesses that are changing the face of women's health in America and across the globe. With these change makers on our side, the future of women's health is bright. Now, let's get into it. Good morning, Women's Health Mavericks listeners. Today, I'm so excited to introduce you to Dr. Allison Cowan, the head of medical affairs at Mervi. Allison has spent most of her career as a board-certified OBGYN, but given her interest in diagnostics, jumped to the business side when she learned about Mervi. Mervi is changing the game for moms through their use of RNA testing to diagnose potential pregnancy complications like preeclampsia, preterm birth, and gestational diabetes earlier. Recent CDC data shows that U.S. maternal mortality rates increased by 40% between 2020 and 2021. I wanted to chat with Allison to synthesize why exactly we have the highest maternal mortality rate among industrialized nations, as well as to hear her ideas as to how we can turn the data around through focus, innovation, and investment. I think you'll really enjoy my conversation with Allison. Well, Dr. Allison Cowan, the head of medical affairs at Nervi, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you today. Thank you so much, Abby. I am thrilled to be here with you. Yes. And you're right down the street from me in Loveland, Colorado. I'm in Denver, Colorado. So that's pretty fun. Yes. We live in a beautiful place. So blessed to be living right here in the Rocky Mountains. Absolutely. Amazing. Well, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Let's start out with just like a little bit of an icebreaker before we actually dive in. So I'm curious if there's just like one fun fact about you or one guilty pleasure that you would like to share with the folks listening to this podcast episode today. Oh my gosh. The thing that's coming to mind right now, because this just happened, but I have three little kids and I'm always torn between activities that I know will be awesome, but we'll keep them up too late on a school night. So (laughs) our guilty pleasure this week is that I brought them to their first concert since for the three-year-old, her first concert ever. And for my older kids, first concert since before COVID. So that was really fun. And I apologize to their teachers for keeping them up (laughs) on Monday night. And what was the concert? We saw Weezer. So (laughs) So, taking uh, me back. That's amazing. So many fun memories and my kids love their music. So it was a great time. Oh my gosh. Holiday in the Sun, right? That was that one for Island in the Sun. Island in the Sun. Oh my God, I'm embarrassed. Bad millennial. (laughs) (laughs) And then, okay, last, second and last icebreaker question. What are you reading, watching, and or listening to right now? Ooh, I am really into a podcast called A Slight Change in Plans by Maya Schenker. So... Love her. I listen to episodes every time I fly. And the podcast for anyone interested is really about how we all cope with major life changes. So when life throws us a curveball, whether welcome or unwelcome, how do we shift our mindset and in our lives to make the best of it? And it's just a really profound podcast where she brings guests on who have had incredible experiences and have grappled with challenges as well as triumphs in really unique ways. So absolutely love her. 
Amazing. I'm a, an avid podcast listener. Hence like why I have a podcast. And so I will definitely add that to my list. And I'll, I'll hit follow and subscribe. So thank you for that. Well, so let's hop in. Tell us about Allison. So I know that you, so you're a board certified OBGYN, but you work at, for a company now. So tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, how your career started and, you know, kind of where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. So I never really thought of being anything but an OBGYN. I remember my mom going through nursing school when I was very young. She had me at a rather young age. And so she actually just finished nursing school when I was about four. And so hearing her stories as a labor and delivery nurse made me feel so passionate about women's health and about caring for women in childbirth. And so I just never thought about any other path. It was my passion from day one. And so I went through all of my education and training and ultimately became a generalist OBGYN practicing here in Colorado as an employed doctor for several years. And through that process, I really enjoyed caring for women, caring for each patient day by day. I loved the variety in our field of OBGYN. I was doing robotic surgery. I was delivering babies. I was doing well woman exams. That whole lifetime scope of care was really satisfying. But at the same time, I think over the years, I started to feel that certain things were missing for me and my career path and for patients and clinicians alike in the way that they experience healthcare. And I just started to think about that in more depth and really noticed across the board from the devices that we use to the diagnostic tests that we have to the electronic medical record. There are so many products out there that are critical to the way that we deliver medical care and to the way that we as patients receive medical care. And I felt that many of these products were leaving a lot to be desired. And I just had this itch to get a seat at the table, to start to be part of the innovation and really to stop accepting the status quo that we always want to be striving for better, giving patients better tools and giving doctors and other clinicians better tools as well. So started exploring non-clinical opportunities and then ended up transitioning into the diagnostics world, which is incredibly fascinating to me in 2021. And during that time, I was following startups in the space. And actually, I saw the most innovative paper I had ever seen in this area come out in very reputable journal called Nature. And this was talking about a company that was using a blood test for moms in the second trimester to predict pregnancy complications like preeclampsia. And everything about the way this paper was written was just spot on. It was the right approach. It was incredibly rigorous and well-conducted. And I was so impressed. I've never done this before with any other paper. I sent the paper the day I found it to the head of R&D at my company. And I said, check this out. Let me know what you think. I think this is someone we need to pay attention to. And everyone was very excited about Mirvi internally. And lo and behold, about three months later, Mirvi reached out to me and asked whether I would be interested in considering a position with them. And I couldn't believe it. And then I said, I've been following you all. I really admire your work. Can't wait to learn more. And then I looked into their team, their founders. And from seeing who was at the helm, it was clear that 
they just have world-class innovators leading the company. And I thought these are incredibly complex challenges to be solving. Trying to predict who is going to develop pregnancy complications like preterm birth and preeclampsia has been a vexing challenge for decades. But from seeing the science they had begun already and from seeing their leadership team with the depth of experience that they have, it was just a very easy decision to join Nervi. That's how I ended up here today. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. I'm super excited to dig into Nervi. So tell us a little, to the extent that you remember, I'm sure you do, maybe, we'll see. Tell us a little bit about the study and the degree of rigor that really caught your attention. Yeah. So what was so amazing about the nature paper were a few things. Number one, it was conducted in a really diverse and global population. And I think we know that one of the downsides of a lot of research historically has been that it has not included diverse populations. And so seeing that commitment to inclusion was really a key priority for me. Seeing the approach in terms of how they thought about looking at RNA in the blood was really innovative. So just to give you a high level, quick Mm -hmm. science lesson for anyone who isn't familiar with RNA, RNA can be coming from the mom or the baby or the placenta. And there are little fragments of RNA that we can detect just from that simple blood draw that moms can have in their second trimester of pregnancy. And so having that blood draw, we can look at the RNA messages and RNA is really telling us effectively which genes are turned on or off right now and how turned on are they? And so from that, we can see a lot about the underlying biology going on in a pregnancy. So the first thing the Nature paper did and the Mirvi scientists did was they looked at serial samples over time in pregnancy and they saw We can tell which genes are turned on right now. We know those genes actually relate to periods in fetal development that we already know about. And guess what? From just a simple blood test with no other information, we can tell how far along your pregnancy is about the same accuracy as an ultrasound in the second trimester. And I just thought this was amazing that it's so reliable and predictable that you can really tie that blood test to how far along a mom is in pregnancy. And then, of course, the second component was the prediction of preeclampsia. And preeclampsia is a challenge that as OBGYNs we see and practice every single day. It's one of the leading causes of maternal morbidity and mortality, both in the United States and globally. So about 250,000 families are impacted every year in the United States and about 10 million globally. So really important unmet need. And we just don't have the tools today to predict who is most likely to develop preeclampsia. And as a result of not being able to predict who is at most risk, we therefore also lack the tools to effectively prevent preeclampsia for those folks who might have an increased risk compared to others. So seeing with the nature paper that they were able to predict 75% of preeclampsia months in advance was a huge innovation. And I was just thrilled to see that come out in the paper. So yeah. yeah. When is preeclampsia typically diagnosed? Definitely third trimester, right? 
Great question. Yeah. So yeah. It, by definition, preeclampsia is diagnosed after 20 weeks in pregnancy. And we know preeclampsia occurs across this spectrum of severity, which is also something we're looking at at MIRV. And so it can occur in the second trimester and it can occur more commonly as pregnancy continues later. So it is more common in the third trimester, but certainly we see it anytime after 20 weeks. Yeah. So for the listeners and Allison, I think you're also, but I'm a preeclampsia survivor and you know, mm-hmm. it was a, I, my, my twins were born at 34 weeks and four days because they just had to come out, you know, preeclampsia was, was diagnosed right then and there. And it was just time, but, you know, I was showing pretty severe swelling in my ankles, protein was not showing up mm-hmm. in my urine. So it hadn't been diagnosed, but I could tell something was wrong. So maybe tell us a little bit about kind of the like historical ways before Mirby that, that preeclampsia has been diagnosed. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think so your experience is really common, first of all, unfortunately, that where you didn't have a lot of warning and you felt like something was off, but it's so difficult because preeclampsia can happen in different ways. Oftentimes you don't have any symptoms or you might just feel off or different, like you just described. The same thing happened to me, by the way, when I was 37 weeks pregnant, I was in the middle of a clinic and I was just like, I don't feel quite right. And, you know, I had a baby that I was induced pretty quickly, <laughs> yeah. hours later. So <laughs> sometimes you just know, fortunately, but I think that's part of why it's so important to give women the tools to know they're at risk because a lot of people don't know the signs and symptoms to look out for. And then they may not be aware of all of the things they can be doing to optimize prevention of preeclampsia. And so historically, we haven't had good tools to predict who is really at risk. We look at clinical factors. So things like having twins is a risk factor for developing preeclampsia. If you have high blood pressure already or some other preexisting medical conditions, that can increase your risk. But the reality is it's very hard to separate who is at high risk from who is sort of at average risk. And it's really important for all expecting moms to be aware of the signs and symptoms of preeclampsia But for those who are at truly elevated risk, it would be great to have the opportunity to let them know that so they can do even more to optimize their prevention. And if they do develop preeclampsia, to make sure they recognize it right away. Yes. (laughs) No, amazing. So tell us a little bit about NIRBs. If there's a pregnant mom listening to this podcast who's like, I'm concerned that I might be at risk. Like, I'm just nervous about preeclampsia. What does Miravi go to market? Like, do you ask your doctor about it? How does it work? Yeah, absolutely. So Miravi is not yet available on the market. So we're really invested in conducting research to confirm those nature paper findings. And so we're well underway with a large study, over 10,000 women enrolled in the United States across multiple sites, very diverse population, both in terms of racial and ethnic diversity, which is so important to have representation in research, and also diverse in terms of how people are accessing care. So we were careful to include 
both academic sites as well as community sites so that it really reflects the spectrum of how people receive care in this country. And so as we get more data from that study, we anticipate testing will become available. And so the first thing moms can do if they're interested is just go to our website and they can read more. We also have some tools for prevention of preeclampsia on the website that are posted. And so that can give you some ideas for questions to ask your physician. We supported a collaboration that was published just this month in one of the premier OBGYN journals. And it was a collaboration between high-risk pregnancy experts and patient advocates and advocacy groups in order to say, if a patient is found to be at high risk for preeclampsia, what are the things we can do to best prevent it from happening? So it was a really important collaboration that brought together a huge volume of evidence from many different sources and really distilled it into one place with a checklist for patients and a checklist for clinicians so that if you are talking with a patient, you have your checklist of all the things to remember to ask about. And if you're a patient and wanting to self-advocate you can bring that list into your doctor or midwife and talk about what do you think my risk is based on the information that you have. Today, that will be primarily based on clinical information. And hopefully very soon with Mirvi's testing, that information can be based on Mirvi's test. So with an objective blood test, we'll be able to say, okay, you're at high risk or you're at lower risk. And then regardless of whether you're at higher or lower risk, there will be an individualized plan of care for optimizing reduction of risk. So things like increased monitoring with blood pressures at home, making sure you're getting sleep is really important. Easier said than done in pregnancy, but we know that things like obstructive sleep apnea are more common in pregnancy and also appear to be contributing to high blood pressure disorders of pregnancy. Interesting. So we're leaving on the lookout for all of those things. We look at, for those at high risk, would look at things like a baseline laboratory evaluation to make sure that you know how your baseline liver and kidney function looks at the beginning of pregnancy so we can follow it if anything changes. Looking at aspirin for prevention of preeclampsia, a lot of people don't know, but a baby aspirin is very safe and well-studied in pregnancy. But even many doctors I know didn't realize that it's incredibly important to take aspirin at least 90% of the time and taking it at night makes a difference. So there's data that it's more effective if you take it at night. So there are these details that if you really systematically implement them, we think that you can push towards much better prevention. And then there's a whole other bucket of lifestyle and nutritional changes that you can consider implementing to further decrease your risk. So there's a whole host of things that we can systematically try to implement, which will be different for moms at higher risk versus lower risk, but there's something that everyone can do to make their pregnancy as healthy as possible. And so that's what we're here to try to support. Like where was Mary when I was pregnant with my twins? Yes. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And I know it's more than preeclampsia. You guys are focused on like preterm birth and gestational diabetes as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And you also, we were chatting over email about how the pregnancy care paradigm hasn't changed since the 1930s. So what is it, 12 to 14, you know, visits with your OBGYN. That sounds like for somebody who's at risk of, you know, one of these complications, which is like one in five people in the United States, one in five pregnant moms in the United States, that this care paradigm really needs to shift. 
Exactly. You know, I think that's such an important point. We are now seeing changes start to come to fruition with the pregnancy care model in the U.S., but it's such a long time in coming. As you said, the pregnancy care schedule hasn't changed since it was developed in the 1930s. And it was initially set up for optimizing detection of preeclampsia. There was no way at all to predict it then, but they knew it was a disease that was of significant concern and they knew it was more likely to happen as you got further along in pregnancy. So that's the reason why primarily we start out with visits about every four weeks at the beginning of pregnancy. And then we move to every two for a while. And then in the third trimester, we go to weekly visits because we know that high blood pressure is more likely the further along we are. But for the modern tools that we have today that weren't available in the 1930s, it seems like we have a lot of low-hanging fruit to take the modern tools at our disposal and really translate them to improvements in pregnancy health. And I think that's what we're just in the nascent stages of. We've seen our professional societies come out with some early recommendations related to the integration of telehealth and home blood pressure monitoring. That's one great example. And I think it's always tough to think about COVID silver linings because it was such a terrible time and is continuing to be such a challenge. But perhaps the one silver lining to COVID that I can point to is that it did allow us to pivot overnight to telehealth and to Mm -hmm. see that it's possible. And I think that is a lasting change for the better that otherwise taken much longer to implement across the field. So kind of, you know, getting into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of the business. So I'm curious, like you're, you're spending a lot of time and money running these studies. What are some of the challenges of being so focused on, you know, these studies as a business? Is it recruiting? Is it like, what is that? Tell us a little bit more about those. I mean, honestly, we've had a wonderful time recruiting in Mm -hmm. that people are so invested in this space for the Mm -hmm. first time ever. So I know you asked for challenges, but I have to say that people are eager to work on this. And that's what's so refreshing from the high-risk maternal fetal medicine collaborators and world leaders that we're fortunate to be able to work with, they're driven by this mission. They share it. And patients likewise seem to understand the value of participating in research. And so we've been really fortunate to have phenomenal engagement. Take the challenge we had at the beginning before I joined Mirvi, but it's an amazing, I think, example of a pivot is that Mirvi was planning to initiate their clinical trial in brick and mortar sites, as is typical of clinical research, and then COVID hit. And so overnight, we did have to pivot to a decentralized enrollment process, which was really unique, but I think brings, again, more value, more diversity to the study. So we were able to recruit patients online. Women were able to find us. They were able to read about the study. They were able to enroll themselves. And then we were able to send a specialist to them to draw their blood at their home or wherever they preferred to have their blood draw conducted. So we made it convenient and quick for them to be part of the study. And that really contributes to the overall diversity of the folks contributing to our research. So we are so grateful to all of those patients who in 2020, in the face of a pandemic, said, oh, I'd love to sign up for this research. It's really amazing. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. But that's really good to hear. And like, certainly I know that that's been one of the the biggest challenges in women's health in the past couple of decades. What we know is 
like, well, we don't know a lot. Like in a ball, what we do know is limited to white women. Like, mm-hmm. And that paradigm, like, absolutely, absolutely needs to shift. That is not representative of the United States and obviously not representative of the world. So, you know, that's really good to hear that you guys are so focused on just that, that diverse pool of Absolutely. And I think in thinking about the national maternal health crisis that we're really facing, I'm sure you know, but maternal mortality has been rising since 2000 and we have the highest maternal mortality rate among high-income countries. And so we have so many ways in which we can do better. And as you said, attention to the populations that are disproportionately impacted by these severe pregnancy complications and ultimately by dying in pregnancy is so critical. And in some cases at the state level, we actually don't even have the data to understand these racial and ethnic disparities in maternal mortality because it's not required to track it, unfortunately. So we have so much work to be done in this area. But what I will say is I found this paper earlier this summer that inspired me so much. And I think a lot of people haven't read it. So just because it's new. So if anyone listening is interested, it is in JAMA Open. And the first author is Fink. Fink and colleagues wrote a paper looking at the delivery hospitalization among 11 million women in this country. So very diverse, looked at rates of morbidity. So having a major complication at the time of delivery and having maternal mortality at the time of delivery. So this Mm -hmm. is in contrast to the overall maternal mortality rate. This is just during the delivery hospitalization. And they looked Mm -hmm. at 2008 to 2021. And they found something really remarkable, which is that actually... Maternal mortality in the hospital at the time of delivery significantly declined. Amazing. So every year in this country, almost 33 women out of every 100,000 die related to their pregnancy. Of those 33, originally in 2008, it was about 10 per 100,000 were dying during their delivery hospitalization. That went down to a little under five in 2021. So we cut it by about 50%. And if you look at the study, the disparities across race and ethnicity appear to have really narrowed, if not disappeared during the delivery hospitalization. So that's why this study is so amazing to me. I thought, what have we been doing that actually moved the needle on maternal health and why aren't people talking about it? And when you think about it, what we've actually done in the last decade in the field of OBGYN that has been a huge step forward is we really started to implement more systematic interventions than we had done before, really at a national level. So we now systematically treat high blood pressures and their quality metrics were held to. If someone has a high blood pressure It has to be treated within a certain amount of time. We don't wait on that anymore. And it's those types of quality initiatives that have been rolled out systematically during the delivery hospitalization that we believe has really moved the needle and dropped both maternal mortality as well as reduced disparities in mortality by race and ethnicity. So it's amazing to see that. And I think the lesson to be learned is How can we translate those systematic interventions across the pregnancy period before delivery and the postpartum period? Because at the end of the day, we still know that the news is grim and that those 33 women are dying of those 33 per 100,000. 
about 28 or so are dying either before they go in for delivery or after. So that's where I think we need to shift our focus. And that's really why I'm so passionate about the work that we're doing at Miravi, because if we can get at these root causes, such as preeclampsia, an incredible driver of the morbidity that leads to pregnancy-related deaths, if we can get at these root causes and systematically attack them, that's our opportunity to really decrease the rate overall. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much for synthesizing that and just like bringing that light. I think we hear so many stories in the news and, yeah. you know, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Like if you have rules and guidelines and like this is the checklist that every single person follows exactly. in a delivery hospital. Checklist. Yeah. yeah. So that's what we're putting out. We haven't been able to tell who's at risk before. And now we're going to be able to tell that objectively with a quick blood test. And then also here's your checklist. Here's what you need to do to implement. And if we can build upon that paradigm and grow it, I think that attacks the root causes. And so yeah. would really just, that's what inspires us every day, I think, in the work that we're doing. And I think also, as you said, we see these headlines every day. There's so much doom and gloom. And so I also think it's really important to pause and acknowledge the field of OBGYN, OBGYNs, midwives, we have made some good progress and it's so important to pause and acknowledge that because of course, of course. here every day is also like we hear these doom and gloom statistics and that's hard, you know. It's so hard. I can, um, I can imagine like the mental health challenge also exactly. for these doctors. Like we know that mental health challenges already exist for physicians and how do we pause and kind of like see the nuances. But I do, I still do have to ask. So you clarified the data on delivery hospitalizations. But like, why is the data going in the wrong direction for pregnancy and postpartum? Why are we going backwards? It doesn't why make sense. Are why are we at least stagnant? Why is pregnancy more dangerous for us than it yeah. was for our moms? It's yeah. crazy that we really have gone backwards for the first time. I think the reasons for that are so complex and no one has the complete answer. But what the data point to are partly that moms overall are sicker than than they used to be going into pregnancy oftentimes. And so that same paper I mentioned to you showing the reduction in mortality at the delivery hospitalization, it also showed that moms are experiencing more severe complications at the time of their delivery than they used to. So it's even all the more impressive that we were able to decrease mortality over that time frame because the data showed us that we were decreasing mortality for sicker people. So it's things like, in some cases, it's being a little bit older when we start our families. It can also be other pre-existing conditions. And then I think it's all of the ways in which we deliver care in this country too that have unique challenges compared to many other countries. You know, we can't ignore that we're one of the only high-income countries that doesn't universally provide health care. Women don't all have access to care. We have a lot of what we call maternity care deserts where people have to drive in some cases hours to reach their hospital or to reach their doctor or midwife. And so there are real challenges that people are facing to getting the care that they need and deserve. We also have not supported moms well enough in the postpartum period. And so we know that we need to do better there. I think fortunately, we have seen some positive changes over the last years. As we've advocated for that as OBGYNs and in others, we finally started to see some action. So more and more states have now expanded postpartum Medicaid coverage to 
be um, 12 months as opposed to six weeks, which is what used to be typical, you know, only getting... Absolutely blows my mind. (laughs) That was the saddest though. So we're making some positive changes, but I think overall just have so far to go to implement all of the things that could really support women and expecting individuals and their families over the course of this incredibly important life event. Yeah, for sure. Well, as we're kind of wrapping up, Allison, I'm curious, like we've talked a lot about big ideas and like things that have, have gone wrong and you know, all the ways that Miravi can help change the world for pregnant moms. As you look at the women's health landscape at large, what's the one thing that you would change about how this industry works? We'd love to hear it. Gosh, the one thing. I know it's a hard, it's a tough <laughs> one. The hardest question of the day. There's so many. At the end of the day, what women and expecting families need is really just more investment in the space. And I think we're starting to see progress in that direction. But if I could move one needle now, it would be to continue to drive investment in the health of our families as a country, because we've seen what happens when we don't prioritize that and we're not doing well, but we have such opportunity. And I think right now is a unique moment in this country that we're finally talking about it. It's getting more recognition. And so now we just need to fund the research that will drive these truly impactful innovations like the science that Mirvi is working on. But then also, I think socially, there's so much to be done to support expecting people and their families across the board. So I wish I had one thing, but... um, (laughs) I like that answer, though. I think, I mean, that's really close to my heart for sure is, you know, a woman with a, a women's health company who has raised capital it is hard. It shouldn't be this hard. There are so many women in this space, mostly women, some men as well, who are doing amazing things um, for their female brethren who are experiencing women's health challenges who are not getting funded and still have amazing businesses. And you know, it's just... a tough environment out there for sure. But I hope that in the next year, that we'll see things loosen up and just in the fundraising environment and, you know, things getting a little bit easier because there are some real problems out there as we discuss in detail for sure. agree. From NIH funding to VC funding and beyond, women's health just needs more investment. And it's important, I hope, for everyone to recognize that women's health is family health. It's not just about women. It's about men. It's about children. It's about all of us. Mm -hmm. It touches every single person. And so it really deserves more time and attention than what it has historically received. Absolutely. And as we close out, I just have one like big thank you. So this was before I knew you. We were introduced by your colleague, Carrie, and, and my good friend, Carrie. But our search consultant, Amy Marshall, we started talking about preeclampsia and, you know, just our excitement to focus on a woman's health during pregnancy and postpartum at some point in, you know, the rescripted roadmap. And so we were talking specifically about preeclampsia and she brought up a stat that you co-authored, pregnancy complications, heightened heart risk in later life. Later in later life, it's time to pay attention. And because of that piece, and I like didn't even know you at that point, I went to see my PCP immediately because Amy was like, this is legit. Like this piece is like, 
truly like they're onto something. They know what they're talking about. And I was like, oh my goodness. Oh shit. I am a preeclampsia survivor. I need to, you know, make sure I really monitor that. So yeah, it's it, me oh going my to my PCP. And I'm you know, so thrilled to hear yeah, that. It's so interesting. Yes. And so I will just share with you, Abby, as a preeclampsia survivor as well, I've made radical life changes because as we talked about in that piece with Dr. Parikh, the cardiologist that co-wrote that piece with me, preeclampsia does predispose you to increase lifetime risk of heart disease and other complications. So I personally have made a commitment to exercise. I've exercised every day in August. This morning, I ran three miles and then biked my kids two miles to school. So I'm trying to practice what I preach, but I am like beyond touch that that impacted you. Oh my gosh, of course. Yes, I'll have to link it in the show notes. So well, Allison, Dr. Cowan, it has been such a pleasure talking to you about yourself, your background, near the women's health, the issues and how we're going to solve them today. And I'm sure we'll chat soon. And thanks so much for joining us. Sounds great. Thank you, Abby. If this podcast means something to you, be sure to hit follow or subscribe. This helps you because you'll never miss an episode. And it helps us because you'll never miss an episode. It's wild enough to be a woman without taking on the wild west of women's health information. The good news is that Rescripted did the legwork on your body so you don't have to. And we're here when you're ready to be an expert in you. Head to Rescripted.com and follow us at Hello Rescripted on Instagram and TikTok.